Welcome to the 466th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome historian of the Red Cross and humanitarian disaster relief, Julia Irwin. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest, but please don't wait too long. We're Coming up on the 500th episode of COVID Calls, and I'll be announcing more information about that in the coming days on my Twitter feed, at US of Disaster. According to Statista.com, in the United States, these are statistics of the number of deaths per 100,000 population. These Numbers were reported March 7th. They're the most recently reported numbers. Today is March 12th, 2022. The highest death rate per 100,000 in the United States is the state of Mississippi, 408 deaths per 100,000, followed by Arizona, 381, and Alabama, 377 deaths per 100,000 population. State of Florida comes in at number 17 with 331. On the lower end of the spectrum, California, 218 deaths per 100,000. Utah, 139 is 48th. Vermont, 97 per 100,000 is 99th. And country with the, the state with the smallest number of deaths per 100,000 Population is Hawaii with 96. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. Headline, COVID researchers, Florida cherry-picked our work in kid vaccine recommendation. This was published by the Tampa Bay Times today, March 12, 2022. It was written by Ian Hodgson. When the Florida Department of Health released new guidelines this week suggesting healthy children should not get the coronavirus vaccine. It cited several studies to back up the position, but at least four of the experts whose research was cited say their work was taken out of context. They said they disagreed with Florida Surgeon General Joseph Latipo's conclusion that the vaccine was more dangerous than the virus for healthy children. I think there is cherry picking of sentences to support what the state wanted, said Catherine Edwards, a pediatrics professor at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, who co-authored one of the papers cited in the guidance. Each of the three studies cited by the state concluded vaccines are safe and effective. Florida health officials did not mention that in their two-page guidance. All four experts contacted by the Tampa Bay Times disagreed with the recommendation and emphasize that the COVID-19 vaccine is the best way to prevent severe illness in children. You don't just pick one sentence from one paper that agrees with what you think you want to say, Edwards said. That's not what a health department is supposed to do. Since the start of the pandemic, nearly 13,000 children aged 17 and under have been hospitalized with COVID-19 in Florida. 
more than 40 have died. Only 22% of Florida children age 5 to 11 have been vaccinated, the lowest share of any eligible age group in the state. When asked about the researchers' concerns, a Department of Health spokesperson said the agency stands by its recommendation. The researchers' conclusions are their assessment of the data. Jeremy Redfern wrote in an email, the Surgeon General disagrees. Redfern said Latipo is a research scientist as well as a physician and disagreements are a normal part of the scientific process. That may be true, said Kalasar Talat, a professor of international health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, who co-authored a paper cited by the Department of Health, but he said it doesn't justify Latipo's conclusions. There might be a scientist out there that says the world is flat, she said. It doesn't mean that they're right. Mark Sawyer, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine, said, I'm distressed that my quote was used to support what I think is a bad policy decision. Sawyer had expressed concerns over potential side effects of the vaccine in an October meeting of the Food and Drug Administration's Vaccine Advisory Committee, of which he's a member. State's guidance quotes two sentences in which Sawyer raised concerns about the risk of myocarditis, a swelling of the heart muscle in some patients. He also questioned whether the number of hospitalizations prevented by the vaccine was overestimated. But Sawyer said Florida's guidance took his words out of context. We raised all possible concerns in these meetings, he said, but we concluded, and I still agree, that the risk-benefit still favors vaccination. Neither the Department of Health nor the governor's office contacted any of the researchers who work, whose work was cited in the report or whose quotes were used as supporting evidence in favor of the recommendation, Redfern said. Had the state contacted him, Sawyer said he would have told officials the quotes were both lacking context and out of date. The risk of contracting myocarditis is a key part of Florida's new guidance according to the Department of Health. To substantiate its advice, the state points to a single study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association earlier this year, which found the highest rate of post-vaccination myocarditis was in boys aged 12 to 17. It's incorrect to claim a rare side effect should dissuade parents from vaccinating their children, said Buddy Creech, a professor of pediatric infectious diseases at the Vanderbilt Institute for Infection, Immunology, and Inflammation, who co-authored the study. The most important thing to know about myocarditis after vaccination, he said, is that it's uncommon, tends to go away without treatment, and does not appear to cause long-term damage. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that for every million vaccinations of children aged 12 to 17, about 70 will develop myocarditis. Reported rates for children aged 5 to 11 are substantially lower. One study released in July of 2021 estimated 633 children aged 12 to 17 would develop myocarditis due to COVID-19 for every million infections, a rate nine times greater than due to vaccination. State's guidance concluded there's a limited risk of severe illness due to COVID-19, citing one paper published in January of this year in the New England Journal of Medicine Papers studied the efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine in nearly 2,300 children, none of whom suffered severe complications from the COVID-19 infection. But the research was not designed as an epidemiological study to look at the severity of COVID infection in children, said Ms. Talat, the Johns Hopkins epidemiologist who co-authored the paper. 
Only a small number of people followed by the study were even infected with COVID, she said. They're twisting the results to fit with what they want as opposed to using the results to determine facts. A recent study from the CDC indicates vaccinations are more than 90% effective at preventing hospitalization in children aged 12 to 17 in the first five months and more than 73% effective thereafter. The study also found that booster doses offered more protection in eligible children. It's understandable if parents are concerned and confused about the best course of care for their children, Edwards said. That's where you have to explain the risks and the benefits. You have to arm people with information. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today. It's a conversation I've really been looking forward to. Let me introduce my guest, Julia Irwin. Julia Irwin is Associate Professor and Associate Chair in the Department of History at the University of South Florida. Her research focuses on the place of humanitarianism and foreign assistance in 20th century U.S. foreign relations and international history. Her first book, Making the World Safe, the American Red Cross and a Nation's Humanitarian Awakening was published in 2013 by Oxford University Press. It's a history of U.S. relief efforts for foreign civilians in the era of the First World War. The book analyzes both the diplomatic and the cultural significance of humanitarian aid in these years. And currently, she's writing her second book, Catastrophic Diplomacy, a history of U.S. responses to global natural disaster. Julia Irwin, it's great to see you, and thanks for coming on COVID Calls. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it and looking forward to the conversation. So let's start the way I usually do. If it's okay, just find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic situation is looking. I was not trying to pick on you uh, with that news article I read, but I thought it might inspire some conversation here at the top. No, not picking on me at all. I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't speak for the state for sure. <laughs> um, no, and you know, it's funny. It's it's interesting. I we have a pretty great. Um, dashboard that is not created by the state of Florida, but rather by one of my colleagues who is in the, the public health department here at the University of South Florida, where I teach. I'm in, I'm in the city of Tampa. Um, so I was just looking at his statistics and happily, um, you know, the, the, the happy side is we have finally kind of come down from the Omicron peak. It looks like we're at our lowest numbers since November and actually some of the lowest, you know, testing during the uh, positivity rates about 2.9%. So it's actually finally sort of feeling, you know, like maybe it's possible to, have guards down a little bit more than, than we have in the past, but it's been, I mean, the last few months have just been um, pretty, pretty awful. I teach at a university here and uh, the number of students out kind of each week and um, uh, students out t uh, taking care of family members has been pretty, pretty, pretty tough. So it's, uh, yeah, we're, it's nice to sort of be at the bottom for now, but, you know, kind of always waiting for whenever the next peak will start <laughs> as well. What so. are the expectations on students if they, get sick? Are they required to quarantine? Are they required to report? Or it's just purely elective at this point? It is completely elective. So yeah, last year, there was a little bit more of a, um, a sort of task force in place. But now it's um, at this point, it's really, um, it's completely, yeah, completely elective. We don't have any um, vas uh, vaccine or mask mandates either. So um, it's, it's pretty much by choice. I will say probably about 50% of my students are choosing to wear masks. Um, mm. undergraduate students, uh, the graduate students are actually about a hundred percent compliance. So everyone, everyone does. So there's, there are a lot of people who are choosing to, um, and a lot of people who are choosing to quarantine, um, my own, I teach a big lecture class and, um, it's in person, but we have a, we have an option to, to tune in, um, 
virtually for those who, who want to. So um, we're trying to make that a possibility, though it's not sort of the official um, official approach. Are you from Florida? I'm not. I grew up in Kentucky. <laughs> so okay. I grew up in Kentucky and uh, went to college in Ohio and grad school in Connecticut. But I've been here for 12 years now. So um, lived through a couple of hurricanes. So I feel like I'm. <laughs> okay. Is that is that what it means to be Floridian? I ask because I talk a lot of times to, to I had a good friend on last week who's from Texas. I'm from Texas. And um, there are certain cultural ticks of Texas. You just have to kind of either be from there or have lived there a little while to get. And I wondered if you sort of speak deep Florida at this point. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, uh, I don't know, Flor Florida's, I love Florida for parts of it, at least. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll start with that. But no, it's a, it's an interesting place. I mean, I think you know, what you started with, the frustration is, is so hard. I mean, I think there is this sort of denial, as, as there are in many states right now, kind of an unwillingness to, to listen to science, to listen to public health based recommendations. Um, certainly, this, this kind of conversation that you started with, with cherry picking the data has been uh, a kind of constant rumbling throughout this early on in the pandemic. Uh, there was a sort of um, person who had worked for the state who was famously, she was fired. And then there was a lot of kind of um, her critiques were that essentially she was fired for speaking the truth about the numbers mm -hmm. and then, you know, saying that. So this has been something that's going on throughout, you know, throughout the pandemic too, that we've been seeing this narrative of um, the numbers not being real or, <laughs> you know, the state trying to kind of pre present a, a better side of it, better light. What's this pandemic? time been like for you? Do you have a, a real a strong memory that you might be willing to share with me? Sure. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. I, I, I've i been kind of reflecting my, uh, the last international trip I took was in January 2020. At the very end, I was in Switzerland for a conference. And I remember at that point, COVID had been, they, they'd found it, you know, they, they realized it was in Italy. Uh, they'd had the first cases in France. And I remember getting a terrible, terrible cough on that trip. I don't think it was COVID. I think it was just some sort of other virus that causes cough. You know, these things happen. Um, and I remember at the, you know, kind of laughing about it. Oh, it must be that that disease, right? This was this was January 2020, right? This was this kind of moment where we we were all still in this just disbelief, right? It, it was, oh, this this won't happen to us, right? This is not gonna be a thing. And then, you know, um, a month later, a little over a month later, classes were shut down for the rest of the semester, everything was canceled, and it was just this very strange moment for me. Um it's been it's been interesting. My father is actually an emergency room physician, um, and he's um, he's he's past he's a little past retirement age, but he's actually kept he's working part time through this. So there's been a lot of certainly a lot of stresses there. Um, thinking about him, he's you know he's um, in his late sixties um, and kind of worrying that. But um, protocols at the hospital fortunately have been such that he has at least not had had symptomatic COVID and was in one of the uh, Johnson and Johnson trials early on. Um, for me, teaching, it's been, we were fortunate to be able to teach online for the first year. Um, so pre-vaccine. So I did teach online, uh, fortunate slash unfortunate, <laughs> the drawbacks as well, but um, have been sort of in the classroom since the start of last semester, um, you know, with masks, I wear an N95 and have all my vaccines. So kind of doing, doing everything I can. And uh, it's, I will say it's been nice being back in the classroom too. I've, I've missed that. So I do feel, you know, Glad at least that that vaccines and masks can make that safer and more possible. So. That thank you for sharing that that memory and and hope hope your dad continues to be in good shape. And uh, you know you're like the third or fourth person I've talked to in the last two weeks who had some sort of January 2020 travel experience. Yeah, it's a and. And I hate to keep coming back to the sort of cinematic nature of this, but I think when we're making sense of disasters, we rely on narrative forms that are already available mm -hmm. to us. And I think yeah. a lot of times 
I don't think monographically, I often think cinematically or musically and try to make sense of things. And um, that, you know, the fact that you were traveling and had a cough, mm -hmm. but it didn't freak you out too much. But if, you, if it had been a month later, or even two weeks, honestly. It would have been incredibly stressful, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, even two weeks. I mean, within two weeks, I kind of was realizing that that's when they were, you know, things were starting to kind of pick up and there were talks of travel closures. And yeah, it was a sort of realized, a realization that, well, I, I certainly, you know, dodged a bullet, so to speak. So yeah, no, and I think the, the, the narratives are interesting. I mean, yesterday was the anniversary of the day the WHO declared the pandemic. So, right, thinking about mm -hmm. when, when disasters start, when we declare that they have started and whatnot. Um, you know, I think that that's, I noticed a lot of people certainly on social media kind of thinking about that, that moment of, of you know, when the disaster quote officially starts or when the crisis mm -hmm. is acknowledged to have started. And certainly that's months, you know, that's months after um, yeah. <laughs> numbers started ticking up. I remember how long it took for the WHO to come out and, and make that declaration. Um, so it's, it's interesting reflecting back on that now, two years later. A lot of times I, you know, in the moment I kind of, I, I downplay or don't pay attention to those kind of things. And then you realize, and, and kind of a little bit like some of the, um, some of the, that discussion around, you know, the sort of final approval from CDC beyond emergency approval of the vaccine, but sort of final approval. Mm -hmm. And I sort of think, well, okay, but, you know, if somebody's already inclined to think something like, hey, there's a pandemic. But actually, there's often a quite sizable percentage of the population that when that authoritative voice comes, it's CDC, WHO, U.S. president, whoever it may be, it does move a percentage of public opinion. It always surprises me. Yeah, yeah. I'm just waiting, you know, waiting for that for that authority. And, you know, that's it's been the interesting kind of um, one of the interesting things I've thought about here is kind of which authorities we listen to as well. Right. Obviously, you started with thinking about, you know, the state surgeon general of my state has now said that, you know, that that statement is that that parents don't need to, you know, or that it's it's parents of healthy children should not be vaccinating their children, which is of course contradictory to what the CDC is saying, what the WHO is saying. I've been interested kind of lately in mass guidance uh, since the CDC changed their recommendations. Um, you know that their recommendations are not necessarily in line with the WHO or with other national health organizations. So kind of thinking about you know, which which authorities do we listen to and do we trust, and um, is is an interesting, especially when they're competing. Uh, and contradictory recommendations too. Let me take a moment to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls and talking today to disaster historian Julia Irwin. And it's always a pleasure to have a disaster historian on COVID Call. I love talking to the epidemiologists. I love talking to the journalists. But when I get somebody from the Guild, uh, I know we're going to have a good conversation. So I, I want to start with your um, with your book, actually, your first book, Making the World Safe, the American Red Cross and the Nation's Humanitarian Awakening. It's a great book. Everyone should read this book. And it's been on my mind throughout the pandemic. And I, and I maybe you could just sort of set the landscape up a little bit for us and, and about that project. And then I want to get into that a little bit and how you maybe have thought about mm -hmm. that research and your findings in light of COVID. Yeah, yeah. So my, my first book, now to, as briefly as possible, <laughs> um, really focuses on um, U.S. foreign aid during the First World War era. So um, and the kind of Define that broadly. So it's it's starting in the kind of late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, really focusing on the conflict and its aftermath, um, going up till the early 20s, 1922, 23, um, and then kind of the aftermath of that. Um, and the book looks at um, the. It focuses particularly on the American Red Cross, which in the early 20th century served as 
the humanitarian auxiliary of the U.S. government. The U.S. didn't. The U.S. government was relatively small, didn't have its own foreign aid agencies at this point. Um, and the American Red Cross by it had a unique relationship with the government um, that was based on both the Geneva Conventions and congressional charters. Um, but it essentially became what William Howard Taft called the official volunteer aid organization of the United States. And I love the term official volunteer because it really sort of captures what this strange state private relationship is. Um, so it's an organization that is you know, mostly staffed by um, volunteers, um, some professionals as well, um, but they're funded by private donations, not by government donations. But they have these really close relationships with the government. Uh, the American Red Cross's original headquarters were in what was then the State War and Navy Department buildings. So they're, they're meeting kind of with State Department officials, with um, leading military officials, with the White House uh, on a regular basis. Um, and really are kind of serving um, the U.S. government's, you know, serving as the U.S. government's humanitarian arm. Um, and so my book is really focused on a couple things. It focuses on the politics of foreign aid. So why the U.S. government decided uh, to, you know, really pursue foreign assistance as part of its foreign policy more broadly, especially during the war and its aftermath. Um, it's also a social history of the individual men and women who worked for the Red Cross. So there are a lot of um, stories of, of doctors, of nurses, of just everyday ordinary people who volunteer and find themselves in Europe, in Siberia, um, in other parts of the world, um, taking part in humanitarian action. Um, and so it tells their stories as it also tells the sort of um, diplomatic and political history of foreign aid. So that's about the most economic uh, description of someone's monograph I've probably ever heard. Well done. Uh, so let me take a couple of parts of this. Why was there not yet, by the early 20th century, particularly what we used to call the progressive era, I'm not sure if that's as much in fashion anymore, but I mean, this is a period of time in which the government bureaucracy of federal and state is growing very rapidly. So why do you need official volunteers even as late as the early 20th century, particularly given the many, many disasters of domestic and abroad that were pretty evidently needing yeah. some mm -hmm. sort of professional intervention by that time? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I mean, so when the Red Cross, so the, the International Red Cross movement begins in the 1860s, um, the United States doesn't sign on originally um, to the Geneva Conventions, um, which under the Geneva Conventions, each nation has its, you know, is, is basically has a recognized Red Cross society that serves as that nation's um, neutral medical agent in times of war, right? That's kind of the original, in a, in a nutshell, that's the original um, intent behind it. The American Red Cross is founded in 1881. Many people know of Clara Barton. Uh, she really did. Um, she pushed, you know, pretty, she and some, some colleagues and some associates really pushed to have a Red Cross society created and for the United States to join the Geneva Conventions. Um, one of the thoughts at the time in the 1880s was, well, the United States is you know, this sort of myth of isolationism, but the United States doesn't take part in wars. Why do we need this sort of organization that's going to um, be involved in wartime relief? Right. This is this is you know, something the U.S. won't do. So part of Barton's lobbying is saying, well, it can also take uh, do disaster relief, especially locally. So in the 1880s, the Red Cross very quickly became um, a domestic disaster relief agency um, and a way to kind of funnel. Um, you know, kind of coordinating and, and funneling money, aid, expertise through the single organization. It had a lot of competitors too. <laughs> you know, sort of domestically, there's there's a lot of um, you know other organizations. There are city and state and kind of ad hoc organizations that, that crop up during any disasters. Certainly, church organizations as well. Um, and so it it you know sort of is, is in this crowded playing field for a while. Um, 
by the Spanish-American War, the, or the, the wars of 1898, the Spanish-American War and its aftermath in, in, in Cuba and Puerto Rico and the Philippines, um, the American Red Cross had sort of established itself and um, played a fairly important role in that conflict and soon thereafter um, was granted a congressional charter. Um, so, it, you know, part of it is sort of the government realizing, well, this organization does have the expertise, the brand name, the sort of, um, you know, the relationship already with the government um, and making that more official. Uh, the government's small, though. You know, the federal government is not the sort of behemoth that it would become after World War II, even though it is growing. Um, it's not the the same. You know, it, it simply doesn't have a lot of the kind of capacity that it would take on later. Um, so this this partnership in some ways uh, fulfills that. Um, the Red Cross is not working on its own. And I kind of mentioned that it already has these it has these partnerships, certainly with with the U.S. government. Um, when foreign assistance happens, so thinking about disasters and disaster relief, um, the Red Cross is often partnering with government officials on the ground. So um, diplomats, um, U.S. consuls, um, military officials in a lot of places, if they happen to be stationed nearby, um, they partner with the Red Cross, too. So it's, it is this kind of state-private mm -hmm. partnership in, in foreign assistance, too. Um, but I think there is a sort of sense, and the Red Cross really um, emphasizes, and they, they, they reorganize in the early 20th century and really emphasize kind of disaster experts, uh, to, to use, you know, mm -hmm. thinking about your, your uh, title, um, but bringing in people who are, you know, have, have expertise in social work and in kind of, you know, early fields of disaster management, essentially, um, to help make the organization a more professional. And this, this kind of goes into the quote unquote progressive era logic, right? It's, mm -hmm. it needs to be a professional organization run by people who have, you know, some expertise, some training, um, in these fields. Um, and so the, the government's really sort of tapping into that, um, that organization. And when World War I begins, um, the organization is still fairly small, but, but expands in very quickly, especially after the United States enters the conflict. Um, and so it becomes a way to kind of um, um, harness, you know, sort of the, the desire of many Americans to, to, donate, uh, to, to donate to the war effort, whether for, for patriotic or humanitarian reasons or both. Um, and it swells very quickly in size. And so I think it's, you know, it's a sort of the government's recognizing that the Red Cross is already, you know, by many segments, the American population is sort of accepted and, and recognized aid organizations. So mm. rather than starting their own, it, it makes more sense, I think, in a lot of ways to simply continue this partnership. Uh, just to follow up on a couple parts of that, I think about um, Michelle uh, Landis Dauber's book, The Sympathetic State. And and her, it's quite interesting argument. If people don't know that book, it's interesting um, maybe in some ways companion to your book that, um, you know, and, and she charted over a long period of time, you know, disaster appropriations coming out of Congress. So it's it's not a formal bureaucracy, but it's still a pretty consistent legislative mm -hmm. response to disaster in, in part because it's the kind of thing that politicians can be bipartisan about, take credit for and get instant credit for on a cynical side. But on the other side of thing, it's it's um, it's tapping into some of the things you're talking about, a, a real desire, a, mm -hmm. A realization that disasters become fixtures of conflict and also urban life, um, and that the government does have some role to play here. But there's this unease that you're describing, and she describes in her work as well, about still having it be fully governmental, yeah. something that voters can actually weigh in on. Can you say a little bit more about that hesitation for that yeah. period? You know, it's interesting. I, and thinking about both Dauber's book and, and the things that I'm talking about, a lot of it is not, not only an unease, but an unease for some sort of permanent organization or funding. So much of these responses are very ad hoc. It's right. Mm. It's not very preventative. It's when once a crisis has happened, then we respond. So there's a lot more focus on sort of response than I think we, we see, um, you know, ideally in disaster management now and the 
late 20th, 21st century, you know, with with the idea that there are organizations that are there that are ready not only to respond, but also to to take part in prevention measures and mitigation measures and things like that. So, you know, I think there is this sort of um, it becomes easier in some ways to reach a bipartisan consensus when a disaster has already happened and people read the headlines and are sort of seeing, you know, seeing the suffering right in the, you know, the sort of um, the, the, you know, the ways that headlines kind of appeal to people's compassion and, and desire to, to, to respond. And a lot more tricky to get people excited and about funding, you know, funding things for things that might happen. Right. So I, I think that there's something to be said for that. Um, Especially, you know, in this in this earlier period, this this you know, desire to have a sort of standing you know, FEMA type organization or USAID type organization, I think, would be sort of bizarre to a lot of people living in the 19th century. It wouldn't have made that much sense in a lot of ways. And again, they do have these other organizations. Dauber also talks about the army's role. Uh, the U.S. military plays um, a pretty significant role in domestic disaster relief in the 19th century, um, and by the early 20th century. Um, overseas as well, um, especially um, where U.S. troops are sort of stationed in the world. So after the United States expands its overseas empire to places like Guantanamo, uh, Puerto Rico, the Canal Zone, the Philippines, all of a sudden you start seeing um, U the U.S. military becoming involved in disaster assistance in these places and, and the region surrounding them as well. So, um, you know, I think there are kind of government agencies that are that are delegated and designated as as you know, responders to disaster, even mm. though that's not their primary function or mission. I think about that era of World War One, also right. in the United States and globally, in the West, certainly in Europe, um, uh, as a a period of, of ferment in feminist politics mm -hmm. and lots of backlash too, of course. But um, is that part of the discourse within the? the the formation of the Red Cross. Can you talk a little bit about because I think that taps also into this sort of notion of what we now have called sort of vulnerable populations and what emergency managers are supposed to be thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and at, at that time, and you correct me, but I mean, um, there's a sort of it's, it's a little bit of a catch twenty two. But this idea that there's uh, that women in society are the ones who truly understand mm -hmm. care. Yeah, <laughs> and feminists of that era. They they pushed back against that. They co-opted that, but sometimes they quite skillfully used that rhetoric as well. Yeah, no, it's there's there's so much I could say. So I mentioned Claire Barton, right? So Claire Barton is you know she really is foundational in kind of getting the Red Cross off the ground. She is essentially pushed out of the organization she helps to found um, in the early 20th century um, by and a lot of you know she's by this point she's in her 80s. Um, she's accused of sort of not being a good record keeper. She's not doing these sort of things that that are considered more professional, right? So there's this kind of clash between this idea of, of the feminine caring and the amateur versus the professional. Um, but those professionals aren't necessarily men. And a lot of the, one of the sort of leading figures who sort of helps to push board, uh, Barton out, and, and she, she has a group, is called this woman named Mabel Boardman. And she's uh, she comes from this elite Ohio family. She has connections with uh, the Taft, um, well, no, William Howard Taft there. They're actually, they have a long correspondence. Um, but, but, she kind of helps lead the the Red Cross for this this next generation, essentially into World War One. Um, and there's a lot of push to again bring in expertise to think about the sort of this idea of 19th century humanitarianism and kind of you know, care as being this this sort of again an amateur thing that 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 women do. Right, caring is sort of seen as this this voluntary amateur act versus professionals. But those professionals can and are um, often women. So it's the idea of professional nurses, especially. Um, to some extent, especially when we get into the First World War, um, female, some of the first generations of female physicians 
um, are, are really brought into the Red Cross. Um, most of them are doing work that is related to the health of women and children. Um, so it certainly continues and, and perpetuates, you know, some of the, the sense of like wit, what type of work even female doctors can do. Um, but it's, you know, I think this kind of, this kind of clash is, is there. Um, by the time World War, the U.S. enters World War I, um, that woman, Mabel Boardman, is also pushed aside. Um, they bring in essentially a, it's called a war council to lead the Red Cross for the duration of the conflict, all men, <laughs> um, led by a banker named Henry Davison. Um, so it's this very sort of, you know, it's, it's in some ways that the narrative arc uh, in the book is kind of interesting, right? You see these sort of two powerful women pushed aside for mm. ideas of professionalization. Um, but again, even during the war, there are a lot of um, they they nineteen thousand American women uh, female nurses um, are you know uh, signed up and registered by the American Red Cross. Thousands of them go abroad. Um, a number of female physicians. I mean, some of the most interesting correspondence I read um, was was yeah the, these women doctors who are on you know um, in France and and Russia, um, sort of really there in the middle of of the war in Serbia as well. Mm. Um, and they're involved in, in sort of taking part and, and, and in a sense kind of having professional opportunities they couldn't have had at home um, mm. because they're given these sort of, you know, they, these these roles and these responsibilities that, that wouldn't have been available to them. So the, the, the interesting tensions, I think, there between, you know, what humanitarianism is and then what role women can play, professionalization and not. And then the final thing I'll say, one, one yeah, more thing. Yeah, no, please. Of like the, the gendering of, of who gets aid. So a lot of the sort of posters that we see, so fundraising posters, a lot of times they're focusing on suffering women and children, especially, right? So mm -hmm. it's this kind of um, trying to, um, you know, in trying to to kind of capture, you know, to, to raise money, to raise support, to raise, you know, to, to garner sympathy, um, really relying on these these images of, of suffering children, of suffering um, women and mothers, especially. Um, the Red Cross's most famous poster, though, is uh, one of their most famous posters at the Times, uh, has a picture. It's it's kind of the Madonna uh, Red Cross woman holding a soldier, and it says, the greatest mother in the world. Mm. Um, so this, this idea of, like, mothering and care. Yeah, I know that poster. Yeah. Really, really kind of, um, you know, together. And, and yeah, it, there's, there's a lot to be said. There, there are a lot of uh, sort of gendered readings of all of this, um, but they're not as straightforward, I don't think, as, as it might seem initially. So, and just to go a little further with this, the, the great influenza, 1918, 1919, how was the Red Cross involved with that? I mean, this is, you know, people have been gotten interested in that pandemic again for obvious mm -hmm. reasons. And a lot of people discovered, even professional historians discovered that there were a lot of blind spots there, that that whole era kind of got sucked up into World War One as a, a by historians of the next generation and even the next generation and it kind of disappeared to a certain extent which is such a strange thing to say yeah it's so strange i mean there's a there's a famous book that you know, uh Alfred crosby wrote called america's forgotten pandemic and i think yeah. now in 2022 we, we have re-remembered that pandemic but yeah i mean yeah. it came about how it appears it's, it's sometimes a sentence of that in, in textbooks about world war one um but no i mean we know now that you know 50 million people die and you get a sentence oh you're right I mean, it's extraordinary so, you know, at the time it was 20, people now say 50. I mean, that that's what we believe. Um, and yeah, and certainly the United States was, you know, as, you know, this, it, especially this, the second wave um, that comes from August to November, you know, September to November 1918 is really the worst. I mean, we know that the most deaths occurred in the second wave. And certainly, I mean, a lot of 
Um, you know, the American Red Cross played a major role. A lot of those nurses and, and physicians as well who had been kind of registered for service with the Red Cross you know, play a role in, in caring for the sick, both at home in the United States, as well as abroad um, in, in, in Europe. Um, of course, many of them become ill and, and die as well. Um, mm -hmm. One of the, the head of the Red Cross nursing service was a woman named Jane Delano. Um, and she went to Europe um, immediately after the war ended in early 1919, actually, and contracted influenza and died. Um, really? So, I mean, this is really kind of poignant story, too. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the, the, the head of the nursing service herself, um, but certainly a lot of I don't have the precise statistics, but, you know, many, many of those women contracted it and, and died as well. So um, but no, I mean, a lot of these sort of uh, we see a lot of the, you know, the again, posters, images from the time are depicting um, people, you know, um, wearing you know, these, these sort of knitted masks that, you know, uh, that the you know, Red Cross sort of knitting is, is promoting. Um, uh, knitting is a sort of volunteer activity that the, even non-professionals can do, you know, non-professional women who are not you know, doctors or nurses can take part by, by knitting masks, by sort of taking part. Um, and certainly the Red Cross is involved in sort of public health you know, uh, messaging and things like that too. Let me just take a moment and remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to historian Julia Irwin today. And so th just um, a little bit more about the Red Cross. Uh, maybe we can talk about as we enter the 21st century. Uh, it's kind of a big question, but I mean, how has this organization changed? I mean, it's still, yep. in, we look at disaster, you know, photography and news reportage. Mm -hmm. um, this uh, group of uh, professional volunteers, um, mm -hmm. they're still there. Yeah, yeah. No, the uh, the landscape has changed in a lot of ways. So the, my my first book, as I mentioned, was on the First World War era. The the second book I'm writing, which I guess we'll talk about in a bit, really goes up to the '60s and early '70s. Um, mm. And it's really you know so the and so you know as as a historian, it's it's you know up to the '70s that I know best, but I can certainly kind of comment on the present. So really, what happens is the Red Cross is again this official volunteer aid organization of the U.S. government through World War One through the '20s and '30s. World War II changes things in a lot of ways. Um, during the Second World War, you see this sort of explosion of, of new aid agencies on the scene as you know, many people want to sort of take part. Some of these are religious and faith-based. Uh, some are just you know, sort of other organizations. Um, the U.S. government creates uh, a war relief control board in 1942 that's supposed to coordinate and, you know, make sure that these these organizations that are cropping up sort of know what they're doing and, and are mm -hmm. you know, not duplicating things, not, you know, scamming people. Um, they register you know, dozens of organizations. After the war ends in 1946, um, that that wartime agency is, is kind of reimagined as a peacetime agency um, that becomes called the Advisory Council on Foreign Aid. It's it's you know it's, it has sort of it's partnered with the State Department later with USAID, um, and a lot of these same organizations um, remain registered with it and take on their own relationship with the government. So. Um, it's not the same as the Red Crosses, but they have access, for instance, to surplus commodities that the U.S. government um, uses as, as food aid. Um, they get um, uh, they get um, uh, um, subsidies to to transport foreign assistance abroad that are taxpayer dollar subsidies. So it really, you know, the budgets of a lot of these these organizations are supported and, and subsidized. 
thanks to their relationship with the U.S. government. Um, but these are organizations that we're familiar with today, like um, it's like Catholic Relief Services, Church World Service, uh, Care International. So a lot of these kind of famous organizations partner with the state. And the Red Cross's role as a result, it becomes more it's, it's minimized to a certain extent compared to what it was in the early 20th century. Uh, mm-hmm. The Red Cross also revises its charter right after World War II and kind of there has been some concerns within the organization that essentially it, this essentially neutral organization was too partnered with the state, too close to the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and you sort of see a shift from, from the 40s and then the 50s into the 60s. The Red Cross maintains a relationship with the government, but it doesn't, it's not that kind of... Um, really one, you know, it, it ceases to be the government's primary humanitarian auxiliary in the way that it had been in the early 20th century. Um, and certainly today, I mean, so much has changed. The government itself um, also in the 40s, 50s, 60s, dramatically expands its own foreign assistance, you know, agencies and arm. So we, we see a lot of legislation and bureaucracy building in the 40s and 50s. Um, perhaps most famously, USAID is created in 1961. Um, we also have a lot of you know, domestically, there's a lot of um, disaster legislation, you know, the creation of FEMA later on as well. Um, and so all of these sort of you know, government agencies make the Red Cross's original role less necessary and less essential. So mm-hmm. for those reasons, it's kind of, you know, it's, its role is minimized. But obviously, yeah, it is. It is still very much an organization today. It is still um, the Red, you know, the American Red Cross is still um, you know, has a charter relationship with the U.S. government. It is still very much involved in disaster relief and recovery. Um, the International Red Cross movement is very much still alive and well. Uh, so now the, mm-hmm. um, the International Red Cross movement itself has two different arms. One is kind of devoted to war and conflict issues. So that's the International Committee of the Red Cross. And the other is devoted to disaster relief and sort of more peacetime type things um, mm-hmm. as well. Um, and that's the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a kind of complicated bureaucracy, but the Red mm-hmm. Cross is you know, the American Red Cross is a member of both of those, the ICRC and the IFRC um, as well. So. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the project you're working on now. And it, it, it must overlap a little bit with what you were just describing in a sort of outgrowth of um, these many different agencies that emerged from, from World War II. And I would just pause here for a second to say that, you know, I remember where I was when somebody asked me the question the first time, is war a disaster? <laughs> and I thought, uh, Yes. <laughs> yes, fundamentally so. I mean, in war, just like disaster is a sort of catch-all term to include pow- many different types of power relations which are occurring over different timescales in which people are, are dying or being injured in, because in, and they don't want to be. Uh, and so, I mean, I think this is, you know, kind of a extraordinary, you know, thing to consider to just in the context of what we're talking about, the how much history really matters here in the formation of concepts that we think of as sort of like a disaster is a disaster, a war is a war. These are eternal concepts. And it's like, well, no, World War I and World War II have a lot to do with the shaping of what we think of as a disaster. So, I mean, just with that kind of setup, can you talk a little bit about the, the current project? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, no, and it's so writing the first book, the first book was mostly focused on the war, right? It really began as a project about the war. But as I expanded to kind of think about the origins of the American Red Cross, how it became connected, I start seeing um, its role in overseas disaster relief and, and epidemic response as well um, to the like you know, plague in China, for instance. I mean, this is in the early, like late 19th, early 20th century. And so I became interested in these, you know, ostensibly peacetime disasters, right? These, these disasters happen at happening outside the context of war. And I kind of decided 
that'll be my next book. I'll, I'll focus on disaster aid. And at this point, at this point, I, I called it natural disasters because that's what I used to say. No, no, I'm, you know, I've read enough disaster studies to, to, you know, to, to shun the word natural disaster. So the disasters caused by natural hazards is better. Um, don't, but no, don't feel no. bad. In my first book, I defined disaster. I actually felt like I needed to define it. I don't know what got into me. And I defined it as a near, as a, a, a focused event at time. It's like I've spent every waking moment ta- arguing against my 2010 <laughs> self about it. So we point. have to be flexible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, natural disaster is, is easier to say. I recognize that. So, yeah. You know, it's, um, but so the, the new book focuses on um, disasters caused, you know, triggered by, by earthquakes, tropical storms, floods. And I'm really I'm interested, especially in these very sudden emergencies. So these kind of, mm-hmm. you know, an emergency that happens really in an instant with an earthquake, um, you know, within a day with, with a sort of with a hurricane, kind of thinking about the, you know, how culturally we kind of imagine these, these sudden crises and, and how that kind of, um, shapes response. Um, when I was starting this project, though, <laughs> the, one of the first things I did was I was invited to write um, an article for it was a special issue of um, First World War Studies. Um, and thinking, well, I need to move away from the first book and start thinking about the second. So I wrote an article called The Disaster of War. <laughs> um, and it's about uh, American understandings of conflict, catastrophe, relief. Um, and really, I was reading a lot of kind of sources that, that I had at my you know, disposal and thinking about the ways that a lot of the people in my first book were talking about war and disaster. Um, a lot of the individuals who ended up sort of helping to run the Red Cross during the First World War, several of them had been deeply involved in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Um, so uh, there's a guy named Ernest Bicknell, another guy named um, Edward Devine. And these two guys were they're from New York. They're sort of since they're they're um, they're really involved in the, the charity organization society movement um, at that time. Um, and so they had kind of cut their teeth uh, doing a lot of disaster relief work in, in San Francisco. And now they're a decade later um, involved in the First World War and kind of a lot of them are kind of thinking about it. And, and others, too, sort of commenting on you know the, the war as disaster, kind of thinking about that idea um, and certainly, you know, and drawing those connections themselves. And, and you know, even you know, 100 years ago, kind of thinking, well, what is a disaster? What is a war? How do they how do they relate to one another? Um, and so I think that that's a really interesting cu- question as well. Um, you know, what gets defined as a disaster or, or a humanitarian crisis? We, we started this conversation talking about definitions and how they matter. And when we declare a disaster, when we declare a war, all of this, all of this matters. Um, but I do think, you know, certainly there's a lot of overlap between the people who are, you know, again, if you have people working in the Red Cross who are involved in international relief, sometimes they're taking part in wartime relief or post-war sort of refugee movements. Sometimes they're focusing on disasters in peacetime context. Sometimes they're focusing on disasters that are happening in wartime context, right? So it, you, just because a war is on doesn't mean earthquakes aren't happening or floods aren't happening, right? Or, or certainly epidemics as well. Um, and so I think they often see what we might what we might now call a complex humanitarian emergency, um, right? There's not just sort of one emergency happening. Um, they don't right. use that term, but they're certainly kind of recognizing it and kind of coming to grips with it. Um, so that's all sort of thinking, you know, it's, it's, it's a complicated term and, and how we, how we define these things is, is challenging. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> I guess that's, uh, I, I could talk a bit more about the book. I'm not sure. Yeah. Where, where we want to go for that. I'll, I'll turn it back to you for a moment and see where you want to go. Well, no, I just, um, actually I want to kind of ask you a wonky historian question just about the second project is what kind of sources are you, are you leaning on there? Because again, as you start to get into the 1960s and seventies, I mean, I think anybody who studies disasters, it's like, 
I mean, it's it's a mess in the sense that there's just too much, and you can follow sort of bureaucratic channels. You can follow, you know, life story of interesting scientists. You can follow individual disasters and or humanitarian records. I mean, so how do you how are you deciding? Or you know, tell me a little bit about the give away your trade secrets, Julia. That's what I'm asking. How, how, what are you looking at specifically? That's why this book, that's why this book took me ten years to write. Uh, <laughs> no, it's uh, it's it's been a while. But no, so again, I. I I did limit the focus so to sort of sudden emergencies, right? So, and I thought, you know, I mean, certainly thinking about famine, thinking about um, drought, thinking about, I mean, you know, epidemics clearly as well. I mean, so I kind of made the decision early on to to limit it in in this way, and in some ways, again, looking back, you know, ten years, was that the right decision? Was it not? I don't know. In some ways, you know, I had to rein it in somehow, um, but obviously, like, there's there's other things that I could have and would have loved to touch on. Um, but I also think, you know, one of the reasons that it makes sense is that people at the time, particularly, you know, even if we disaster studies, you know, in the disasters community today sort of say, well, there's no such thing as a natural disaster, right? All disasters have human causes. People 100 years ago certainly said, well, there's a natural disaster, an earthquake yeah. happened, right? A flood happened. So for them, it is an actor's category that, that matters. And it, it shapes legislation. It shapes um, both domestic and international humanitarian law. Um, so this kind of, it shapes insurance, um, you know, this idea of an act of God um, for certain t categories of crisis. Um, so I do think, you know, recognizing that that matters. And also, again, the way that people think about these things, you know, they see headlines of sudden emergency and it shapes the way that they respond um, differently from these sort of long kind of what we would you know, creeping disasters as, as mm -hmm. we might talk about them now. And um, so I think there are some reasons to to focus that way. Um, in terms of sources, though, so the book really focuses on it's a story of U.S. foreign disaster assistance for really the first three quarters of the 20th century. Um, mm -hmm. And it looks at the relationship um, or what I've called three pillars of the U.S. humanitarian system. Um, so it's certainly the Red Cross and other voluntary organizations, especially later on, the ones that I mentioned earlier, um, are one. Uh, two is the State Department as and the staff of U.S. diplomatic missions, consular missions, um, later development missions, things like um, uh, uh, you know, with USAID and its predecessors. Um, as well, And then the third pillar is the U.S. military. So um, both initially the Departments of War and Navy um, after 1947, they merged into the Department of Defense. Um, but then the service personnel of the US Army, the US Navy, um, the Marines, later the Air Force. Um, and so the role that all three of these sort of, again, pillars play in disaster aid. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at the responses to disasters beyond um, US, beyond the United States and its territories. So the book is not focused on you know, domestic disasters. It is not focused on um, disasters in, in Guam or the, you know, or the Philippines or Puerto Rico when they were US territories. It's really looking at US responses to disasters in other nations and empires. Um, I'm really interested in the politics and the diplomacy of disaster relief. Uh, the, the working title at least is catastrophic diplomacy. Um, so it's, it's kind of thinking about the, the politics that are inherent in these release op relief operations um, as, as well as kind of telling the stories of, of some of them. Um, a lot of the sources um, for that reason have been, uh, so, so my, my, the bulk of my sources have been um, from you know, the National Archives in the United States. So it's, um, there's a lot of, consular records, diplomatic records, State Department records, mm -hmm. uh, military records, and American Red Cross records. These are kind of like the, the meat of, of the project. Um, but also kind of looking, um, I went to, I think I've been to 12 different presidential libraries. So doing a lot of, you know, um, going around and they have a, they have a 
within White House office files, there's something, uh, there, there are different codes. Uh, and there's a code that's DI, it's for disaster. <laughs> so you go in, you, you call up all the disaster books uh, boxes, you can look at them pretty wow. easily. Uh, the State Department also has a decimal code for disasters, so it's it's 8:48 early on. So you can actually call up countries by disaster, and it's it's you know makes again like the the decision to categorize things of as disasters were things that they did as well. So it makes the research kind of um, you know, following that, um, and then internationally. So the, the book tells the story of U.S. responses to you know it's really kind of summarizing and synthesizing hundreds of, of disasters you know worldwide. Um, impossible to go to every country that the U.S. was involved in, a possibility you know, to learn every language. So the way that I tried to kind of capture voices from outside was, was looking especially at international organizations. Um, so I did a lot of research at the um, what is now called the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Cross Crescent Societies um, in Geneva, what was then the League of Red Cross Societies for much of the 20th century. Um, so a lot of my research is coming from there. Um, other organizations, um, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations um, became pretty involved in disaster relief in the post-World War II era. Um, so I have, uh, you know, I did their, their archives are in Rome. They're the best archives I've ever been to. You like overlook the Colosseum. The cafeteria is amazing. Um, so I did work there. Um, I went to the British archives in Kew. Um, so kind of thinking and trying to kind of see how other, you know, how other kind of organizations and, and governments are, are talking about the, these relief operations. So that's sort of the, the bulk of the research, I think. So which American president of the 20th century is the most interesting to read about disaster? That's a great question. Um, it's got to be LBJ. This is just my guess. But I, you tell me I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, you know who actually interested me more than I... Well, first of all, Taft always interests me. <laughs> William mm -hmm. Howard Taft was like foundational in getting the American Red Cross kind of involved in the government and partially mm -hmm. in this relationship with Claire Barton. I never thought I would be interested in Taft. I became sort of fascinated with him in my first book. Um, so Taft, those, those Republicans loved private sector, public facing agencies. They, really was, did. they, were, they were so <laughs> excited about that. I mean, of all the fire stuff that I studied, you always find Republican, um, yeah. you know, politicians fighting for the sort of private labs to then yeah. form public to do public work, right? Yeah. Well, associationalism. The Taft family, I mean, remained like involved in politics for a long time. And actually, there's really interesting. I don't think I want to write this book, but there's a really interesting book to be written about their the family's involvement. One of the first directors of the U.S. Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, which was created in the 60s under USAID. Um, not one, She was like, I think the fourth or fifth was Julia Taft. So okay. a later Taft was actually, yeah. I mean, wow. so yeah. Anyways, um, someone else can write that. But Taft was interesting. Hoover, Herbert Hoover is often remembered for um, his, his wartime relief as well as um, the uh, the Great Mississippi Flood of, of the 20s. And certainly if we think about the Depression as disaster, right, we can we can put Hoover there too. So I think him. But um, coming to the later part, you know, I, Eisenhower really surprised me. Eisenhower, mm. within like days of coming into office, um, the North Sea floods uh, hit um, uh, both it's the Netherlands, Belgium, and uh, the UK. It was especially devastating in the Netherlands. Um, Eisenhower gets, you know, one of the very first crises he is dealing with is these major floods in in Europe. They end up sending uh, U.S. NATO troops to, to take part. So it's this kind of really early interesting thing. And his presidency is just filled with international disasters. Um, it's under Eisenhower that we get the first, um, what, what would later become called Food for Peace, Mm -hmm. um, but it's uh, essentially the first you know, government, major governmental food assistance program, PL480 is the, the other way we think about it. Um, it's really under Eisenhower that we also have a lot of the kind of um, early 
predecessors to USAID, which would mm -hmm. create under Kennedy in 61, um, and just the number of catastrophes <laughs> abroad that, that his presidency ends up dealing with. So there's another one in Greece in 1953, um, that there's a lot of kind of concern about communism there in 54. There's major flooding of the Danube and Elba rivers. Um, the US government sends its first aid to the Eastern Bloc since before, you know, essentially since uh, before World War II. Um, and so there's, you know, and then, you know, in places like, you know, we see during his presidency, the U.S. starting to deal with um, a lot of countries that are becoming newly independent nations after decolonization. So there's a lot of kind of um, interest in providing assistance to India and Pakistan, kind of thinking mm -hmm. you know, the diplomacy and the politics of that. So I don't know, Eisenhower. Is this? Oh, that's fascinating. But it, do you own that to the fact that Eisenhower, I mean, is an allied military commander and actually knew what war, because of war and because of probably the conjunction of, of war and so-called natural disaster, he actually really knew what kind of things were needed and what a superpower could provide? Or is it more this sort of... Um, rising knowledge of what is the soft power in a Cold War and the importance of that. Maybe it's not either or, but I'm curious. Maybe maybe a bit of both. I mean, I think, you know, it's mm. it's in the story I tell in the book is really from, from World War II through the 60s. We just see a gradual, it's very slow sort of centralization, standardization, kind of coordination of disaster relief under the federal government. So what had been very much an ad hoc kind of response to disasters and, and much of it done through the Red Cross and voluntary channels between the 40s and the 60s really becomes more and more something that the state takes on uh, as its own. Um, yeah. 1964, the first, well, what would become the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance is formed. Um, so it's the first time that like a select government official is charged with the sole and explicit responsibility of coordinating disaster relief on behalf of the U.S. government. Um, so I think Eisenhower's presidency, right, which spans 53 to 61, is, is this, this moment. So I don't know how much it's Eisenhower the person as much as kind of the moment he's his mm -hmm. administration is, is, you know, kind of involved in. Um, but certainly, you know, I think reading, I mean, yeah, the, the North Sea flood, for instance, he he immediately kind of said, let's let's form a committee that, that's going to deal with this. I mean, there was this kind of sense of like both the urgency of the early Cold War moments and perhaps, you know, kind of recognizing that this is affecting Western European allies. I mean, that that certainly was you know, he, he's involved in these discussions, too. So it's yeah, it's, it's interesting to kind of think about that. Yeah. So I know you're looking at it in this project on, you know, as you call it, ca catastrophic diplomacy. So it's outward facing from the United States. But at the same time, I, I, you know, my understanding of the history of civil defense in the United States and the rise of what we might think of kind of the bureauc bureaucratization of federal disaster response with FEMA 1979. A lot of that is driven by mayors and governors who are just really angry yep. that uh, whenever disasters happen abroad, there seems to be this robust, you know, response. But we can't get a dollar for flood control in the United States. We can get, you know, rations and radios if there's a nuclear attack. But I mean, this so there's a kind of there's a populist edge to it as well, particularly in the South. I, I know you're not tracking that. In the, well, maybe you are tracking that in the book. I don't know. But I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, no, no. And I think, you know. I would say, I'm not tracking it in the book, but I would say it's interesting because I do think some of that is overestimated, right? There's there's always, when we whenever uh, the American public is surveyed about, you know, how much money is given in foreign aid, it's always, they're always completely overestimate, right? So right. the amount that, like, people say, oh, 10% of the budget is foreign aid, it's, it's 0.1%, you know, and a lot of that aid is actually military assistance, right? So it's not what we would think of as you know, foreign aid is not all humanitarian assistance. Yeah. Disaster. We're so, here to build a base for yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah. We think there's a kind of over, you know, over sort of selling, but it is well, interesting. That's interesting. You know, the theme that comes so late because there is, 
within the disaster management kind of community, and especially like the people I'm looking at who are involved in USAID and who become part of OFTA, the Disaster Assistance Agency, they, especially in the 60s and 70s, are having the same things. They're saying, you know, we have we are responding more and more disasters every year. Like sometimes we run out of it. The, much of it is initially funded by something called the Contingency Fund, um, that is you know part of the Foreign Assistance Act, which again suggests like oh disasters are simply contingencies, right? And sometimes that fund runs out, and then there's like sorry, there's no more money left in the Contingency Fund. So they're dealing with these same questions too, thinking about international disaster relief. Um, and kind of pushing for more coordination, more standardization. So this office that's founded in 64 is a step towards that, but it's actually not until 75, 1975. And this comes from pressure in the 60s and 70s from disaster management folks, especially in USAID, um, that the Foreign Assistance Act is amended to actually include the word disaster for the first time. So there had been no legislative sort of authority for US international disaster relief. It had been done, for a long time um, on this ad hoc basis. But under the Foreign Assistance Act, there was nothing that said the US government can do disaster relief abroad. Like it can do these things. They create a new chapter that really spells out basically everything they've already been doing, but makes it formal, formalizes into the law, kind of um, acknowledges the president's role, the State Department's role, um, creates at that point a kind of consistent budget for disaster aid specifically. Um, so that's a kind of, for, for my book, 75, this this kind of passage of this act is really kind of momentous one for, for, for them. And it's, it's an important moment. And that's not far from 79, right? So I think there'd be an interesting book to be written about the 60s and 70s and thinking about this kind of push. Or maybe it wouldn't be interesting. It'd be interesting to us. <laughs> maybe to nobody else. But a push for coordination, a push for standardization. Um, and I think that that's like, you really sort of see that in it. So I think that kind of push at home too, with FEMA and, and with this, you know, we, we need a way to like ensure that, you know, that there is going to be a, you know, that these responses are going to happen and not just be, you know, we're not going to be forgotten and left behind. Quick note that we're, um, we're talking to Julia Irwin today on COVID calls and she's kindly agreed to hang out a, a few more minutes. So I'm going to commit some historical malpractice here, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. So stop the clock in 1975, the bureaucracy as it exists in the United States, you were just describing sort of changes in the, in the law. Um, the response to COVID-19 or a similar event, had it happened at that time, significantly different from what we saw here in the last two years? I can't even imagine. <laughs> I mean, I think when I think about COVID, I, I mean, even with the thing that I imagine with COVID is simply the technology. I mean, I cannot mm -hmm. imagine what COVID would have looked like even 10 years ago, mm -hmm. alone 50, um, without all of the capability to do video conferencing and calls. I mean, none, you know, we had Skype 10 years ago, but it was, I don't know if you ever remember using it. Like it yeah, was, no, it was, worked very well. Yeah. Yeah. It was, <laughs> um, you know, and so the things that we were able to do in terms of changing workplaces really, you know, immediately um, for, for a lot of people, not everyone, obviously, but for a lot of people to be able to stay home um, and work that way, I think was, was only possible in some way because of technology. So for me, that's, like one of the major things mm. that would have changed. Um, I don't know, in, in terms of like surveil, I mean, all of the sort of technologies that go into surveillance um, into, you know, the ability to kind of get, you know, up to the moment news um, about case rates globally. I mean, all of that, you know, the, the sort of global surveillance network to be able to trace diseases to, I mean, certainly the, um, you know, the vaccine developments that really started because of SARS and MERS, Right. We, we had we were able to get a vaccine so quickly because there had been a lot of work done you know, 20 years ago. So, I mean, it's it's just hard to imagine. I mean, certainly there were influenza pandemics in the 50s and 60s. 
um, and that that really do you know kind of yeah. make people aware of, of the dangers of, of you know of, of you know bad flu influenza years and that's not a coronavirus but you know I think that they they were dealing with with respiratory illness pandemics in the 50s and 60s and and um, there's there's you know interesting histories of that too and how they dealt with it how they tried I mean they had some vaccine technology they had um, some kind of monitoring technology but it's yeah it's hard to imagine what COVID would have looked like then versus now. So. Let's talk about categories a little bit again. Um, and so in the middle of this pandemic, now there's a, there's a major war in the European continent. Um, there's been you know an ongoing war in Syria, Latin America, refugee crisis, ongoing humanitarian needs around the world. So I want to bring you back to kind of this question about the... Hmm, the problematic nature of calling something a humanitarian crisis, something a refugee crisis, something a pandemic, something yeah. a disaster, and and your sense of of still even in 2022, how that enacts certain imaginaries, how that enables certain legislative and professional responses, because it's not we'd like to think. I mean, to, to me, it's it, it it's all a set of power relations. It's all disaster, and we're looking in deep inside, but. That's not necessarily the way that the world is structured in terms of how delivery works. Mm-hmm. Well, no, and I think, you know, coming back, I mentioned earlier that, you know, that there are essentially two arms of the International Red Cross movement, the one that does war stuff and the one that does peace stuff, right? I mean, and this, you know, this, is very, this is a very simplistic rendering, but that's that's what was sort of set up, uh, you know, in 1919. And it, it shapes the way at least the Red Cross movement itself um, responds to humanitarian crises as a broad category. Um, and certainly we see that in a lot of aid organizations. I mean, they, they, their mission statements are, we will do, you know, X, Y, and Z, but not A, B, and C. Um, this, these are the types of things we respond to. And then when confronted with more complex emergencies, I think a lot of them sort of say, do we, you know, does our mission include this? You know, do we not? So it, right. it really does, you know, this, right. this attempt and desire to categorize has real world effects, but can often be deeply problematic. And I think, you know, Ukraine right now is a great example or Afghanistan, I mean, or any of the places you mentioned too. I mean, in war zones, you know, and when, when there is, when there is conflict and violence, armed violence and refugee crisis, crises, it doesn't mean that COVID has gone away. I mean, so, you know, there are going to be people living in cramped type environments where respiratory illness is spread easily, obviously things like vaccine distribution are limited. I mean, so all of these sorts of ways that, you know, these things, work together. Um, one of the things I was sort of reading recently um, is an important reminder that like with the focus on COVID and with the health, the effects that COVID has had on health infrastructures um, in like much of Africa, for instance, sub-Saharan Africa, things like HIV, AIDS, um, TB, malaria, which had been making sort of steady progress in, in helping to mitigate those diseases that have fallen by the wayside, right? Resources yeah. stretched. And I mean, so we're also forgetting kind of the ongoing health crises and issues that that a lot of people in the world are facing. I mean, so, you know, all of this is to say, like, there's there's yeah. always so much going on. And, and it's really, like, understandably, I mean, people, the, the, you know, sociology sees the term compassion fatigue, right? We, we, we kind of, you know, are sort of saturated with certain things and we, we stop thinking about them or we turn our attention to the next crisis, right? They're the way that the kind of news cycle invites us to to focus on certain crises and to simply start to forget others. Uh, is is hard. I mean, so there is this um, and hard to kind of deal with and grapple with. Um, 
you know, I think, you know, a lot of people in the aid community um, are aware of all these things and are working, but, it, you know, thinking about how do you get the resources? How do you get the funding? How do you get the support yeah. to, to deal with all of these crises um, kind of ongoing in both the sudden emergencies and the sort of um, much more long drawn out um, things, uh, you know, the health, health related issues. It's, it's all, I don't know, it's all hard. <laughs> it's easy yeah. to write about Florian, but not to imagine how to fix it right now. Yeah, I want to, I mean, I want to come back to something you said, something really interesting you said in your riff a minute ago about natural disaster. And and for those who don't follow this discourse closely, I mean, there's sort of in the last few years, I mean, there's a, a strong pushback among the community of people who study, particularly those who focus on um, community and disaster and focus on, you know, underserved communities and disaster to say, you know, the, the, the term natural is not useful here because it takes human agency out of the story. When, it's like an act of God sort of thing. We're not going to study, ever find power in there if we're just talking about nature. Yeah. And then there's the the cranky historian. And I agree with that. And I advocate for that. But on the other hand, it's like, well, the historical record uses that term. We have to, we have to grapple with that, right? Yeah. And, I, and I see the same exact thing happening right now in Ukraine. And I wanted to ask you about this because it's like, there's a pandemic going on there. They've had terrible death rates yeah. in Ukraine. Their vaccination rate is low. I talked to... A doctor in Ukraine on COVID calls a couple of days ago, he, he was explaining to me that the complicated history of vaccine hesitancy mm-hmm. in Ukraine and the complicated legacies of the Soviet health system in Ukraine. Yep. Um, but they're talking about the war. Now, I want them to be talking about something a little more complicated than war. Right. The word war leaves me cold here. We're, we've got a climate emergency, a nuclear emergency, a pandemic and armed conflict all happening at the same time. Um, so when I write an op-ed, I can do that, but I know 10 years from now, I'm going to be dealing with documents yeah. <laughs> of the historical record that are going to flatten all of that. And this is a war. Yep. And I don't know what to, I'm confessing now, I'm ranting and confessing. I don't know what to do with that. I think that's a problem that maybe we all face when we sort of like have to deal with analy- actors categories and our own sort of yeah. subjectivity in the analytical space. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think the parallels with the First World War and influenza are really telling here, right? I mean, like, if we think about, uh, you know, people at the time, right, are, are recognizing that, oh, my God, there's this, you know, deadly influenza pandemic in the last year of the war. I mean, it's, it's affecting, like, the first wave comes at the time of the German spring offensive. The second wave is the kind of allied counteroffensive in, in September, October, November. I mean, and, I mean, we know, right, that, like, doctors are, you know, on all sides are kind of reporting our soldiers are calling sick. I mean, we know that flu and the war are working together. We know that people are, you know, there are a lot of civilians as well who are refugees and displaced, a lot of healthcare workers dying. And we know from that, right, that there was this kind of complex emergency. But as you say, as we talked about earlier, right, 100 years later, we talk about first the First World War and the influenza becomes a forgotten pandemic. And yeah, I mean, one, obviously this is already happening in real time, right, it is as you just mentioned in, in places like Ukraine and in other places where there are major refugee crises in you know, other parts of the world as well. I think it's worth, worth pointing that out. And I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I think a lot of, you know, maybe our, you know, maybe our kind of obligation as historians, right, is, is to kind of push beyond, you know, to push people to think about the fact that, that humanitarian emergencies are always complex, right? There is no such thing right. as something. Um, and it's thinking about not only those things, you know, not only disease and and armed violence, but obviously like sexual assault, and the mental health yeah. effects of war, um, you know, famine, food issues as well. I mean, there's just this this enormous kind of category of of constellation 
of things happening, right? And it's it's you know pushing beyond sort of identifying them as a single thing. So yeah, I, I like the term complex humanitarian emergency for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously wordy, but it reminds us that like there's not a single a single cause. There's a constellation. So I I don't know. In some ways, it's our job as historians. I think it's always our job as historians to say everything is complicated. Um, but maybe now more than ever, you know, in this in this kind of situation. Well, I've been really greedy with your time on a Saturday morning. I, just on the way out, uh, could you say, I know you're teaching a class on pandemics right now. Yes. So as if you don't, this is disaster historians, right? Like we do, yeah. this is our day job. And, and <laughs> like you got to teach disasters and you got to research disasters in the in yeah. the evening. It, it's too much, right? Are, are, you, are you enjoying it? Uh, yeah, it's weird. I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm not sure. One of the reasons I think, well, I'll, I'll, t- I'll say two things. When, my, when I first wrote a personal statement to go to graduate school, I was going to be a historian of medicine and public health. And I had the line, I'm passionate about disease. And one of my, my advisors in college was like, that's, you shouldn't say I'm passionate about disease. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think kind of, it's, it, I've always laughed at that because it. it I, I, I like it. I would have kept it. I, I, I like that. Passionate about disease and disasters. Now, one of the things and I think the, the, the answer, one of the things I really appreciate about studying humanitarian assistance is, you know, it's so I, I'm interested in the politics and the power relations of humanitarian aid, for sure. Um, all humanitarian assistance is done f- for political reasons and with political motivations in mind. It's it's impossible not to, you know, it cannot be apolitical. It cannot be neutral, no matter how much people declare it to be. That being said, there is a lot, there are a lot of really wonderful stories of people who are involved in humanitarian action who are, you know, at least trying (laughs) to be selfless and altruistic. And that kind of balance, I think, um, looking at the people who try to do good, who try to, who try to ameliorate suffering, who try to um, fix what is wrong, who try to confront injustice too, that are, that are leading to these issues in the first place, whether it be climate justice or sort of, you know, um, unequal distribution of vaccines or, you know, things like this, Uh, you know, all of this, there are, there are stories there of really courageous and, and, you know, inspiring people too. So I think that's why I like studying humanitarian aid. It's, it's, you know, not telling this, this story of like glorifying and, you know, heroizing people, but it's also not just the story of of the politics. So um, being able to kind of find those sides makes it maybe more (laughs) bearable uh, to, to talk about the the violence and the death and the destruction all the time. Um, But teaching the class has been really rewarding. I mean, my students, it's a big gen ed class um, that I'm teaching for the first time. I'm co-teaching it with a colleague who does medieval history. Um, and we have a lot of students in this class who are taking it because it was a gen ed credit and they're med student, they're pre-med, they're um, biology, yeah. they're chemistry. But being able to sort of see them and make these connections and then get them thinking about humanities too, right? In the ways that, yeah. you know, uh, the, the famous historian of epidemics, Charles Rosenberg, talked about how all epidemics are framed. Like they are um, biological and, and you know, uh, scientific, you know, their bases, biological scientific bases, but they're also always socially and culturally made and constructed. Um, and getting sort of students who are going to be involved in, you know, in, in medical careers in the field to, to recognize that and to think about the lessons learned, I suppose, from mm-hmm. past epidemics and past the ways that past societies kind of dealt with these things are, are useful. And, and seeing students kind of make the connections between COVID now and, you know, um, and whether it be influenza 100 years ago or, or plague, you know, 800 years ago, recognizing the connections that they're drawing is pretty, pretty terrific. So. Sorry, I lost my mute button there for a second. Uh, and well, I'm glad that you have the big gen ed class. And I have the, I'm glad that you have that many students who are 
also being invited to think deep about deep historical connections. I think that's really, really powerful and important. Um, so I, I think we better wrap up. And uh, I just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Although these days we're doing COVID calls sort of day and night as we head up to the 500th episode, which will take place uh, this coming week on March 17th. And we'll be launching the COVID calls archive on March 16th. And I'm thrilled to have gotten a chance to speak today to Julia Irwin. Thanks for this luxury to get to talk about both of your projects in such detail. It's really great to speak with you. Thanks, Julia. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for the great questions and conversation. I really appreciate it. Stay healthy, everybody. And we'll see you next time on COVID calls.